I want to say it's a joy to be here with you this morning. I hope that you have been edified by the song service so far. I want to bring to you some thoughts this morning about some things that I've been pondering, and Matthew was asking me what the title of the, of the sermon was, and I said, good question, and that that's actually was true about three days ago. I didn't know what to title this because I had been thinking about the contents for so long, and that's not to say that there's not a focused purpose, but I had forgot to add a title. So this is the title, if you want to call it anything this morning. We're going to talk about substitute satisfactions, and to introduce that concept, I want to take you through a thought process that led me to the point where I was putting the study together, if you'll bear with me. People who know who I am and who have talked to me in the past understand that I'm a very nostalgic person. And the moment you hear that, you're probably thinking, we've had a conversation about this before, if you've talked to me at any length of time. What I have a problem with is I tend to get caught up in nostalgic feelings of the past, of things that I experienced as a child, moments of comfort, things that I tend to retreat to when life gets difficult. And I know we all can relate to that to some degree. And I got to thinking about that, and I noticed that as life went on, I started to indulge in those things in a very sinful way. I started to seek out things that I experienced as a kid, whether it was movies, games, television shows, whatever it was, things that might be innocent to a certain degree, I would seek out those things to the point of sin. And what I mean by seeking out those things to the point of sin is that they eventually became an idol. They eventually became my only source of comfort. I would start to neglect my family because I was indulging in those things too much. And so I wanted to see what the Word of God had to say about this kind of behavior. So I know this may sound strange, but I just went to Google and I typed in, what does the Bible say about nostalgia? Because I was curious if it was a subject that the Bible even addressed. And then I come to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10, where Solomon says, Do not say, Why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. He says, don't ask this question. It's, it's foolish to ask, why were the former days better than these? Don't compare the past to the present. Don't ask, why was it better then than it is now? And what's interesting is that Solomon doesn't necessarily say that it's evil to reminisce on the past. He doesn't say that it's wrong to think about the past. But he says to compare it to the present and ask, why was it better then than it is now? To seek comfort in those things. So after that, I wanted to find an instance in Scripture where I found this principle borne out. I knew there was going to be something that went wrong this morning, and that's that the iPad keeps locking up. You don't have to worry about that with paper. So I get to Exodus chapter 32, beginning in verse 1, and I'm reading the story of the children of Israel. And it's the story of the children of Israel at Mount Sinai with Moses, Aaron, and the golden calf. And as I read through the story, I think it's an interesting little case study, and maybe not necessarily a form of nostalgia, but a deeper problem that I noticed was going on. And that the problem wasn't necessarily nostalgia for me, but it was something much deeper, and something that I think we all can relate to. So Exodus chapter 32, beginning in verse 1, Moses has gone up onto the mountain to receive instruction from God, and the children of Israel... Picking up in verse 1, it says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
So they don't know where Moses is, or they don't, they don't know when he's going to get back. He's up on the mountain, and so they say, we want a God to be made. We want an idol to be made for us to worship. And Aaron said to them, Bring, or break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off their golden earrings which were in their ears, and, he brought, and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand. And he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God. O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast of the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves." They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So as I'm reading this story and as I'm thinking about the concept of, of nostalgia that I approached this with, I wanted to be careful that I wasn't reading something into the story that wasn't there. I didn't want to come to it with the preconceived idea. But as I read through the story, I saw that there was a deeper principle at work here. It wasn't necessarily reminiscing on the past and the joys of the past because with the children of Israel there, they they didn't want to be back in Egypt because they thought it was comfortable. They didn't want to be back in Egypt because they thought it was pleasurable to them because they missed being there. But notice here that there's something that they brought with them out of Egypt. I was talking with Mitch about this a few weeks ago. I was doing some studies about idol worship in Egypt. And uh, I read an article online where somebody was talking about the way that the Egyptians treated religious images, and the the phrase went something like, idol worship didn't necessarily exist in Egypt, but a practice of worshiping religious images that were images of the gods that they had worshipped. And Mitch's face, he kind of made a face that was rather meme-worthy at the time, just kind of rolled his eyes. It's basically the same thing. It's idol worship. So at the time, this is where the children of Israel would have picked up on something like this. So you might say that they were led out of Egypt, but they didn't necessarily leave all of Egypt behind. And in this moment of distress and in this moment of discomfort and anxiety, when they don't know what to do, what do they retreat to? They make an idol. Instead of retreating into the comfort that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob led them out of, the, led them out of bondage, they retreat to something else that was familiar to them. And I got to thinking, well, that's kind of what I do. So there's something deeper at work here. There's something else going on. They had spent 430 years in Egypt. And at this point, they were only out of that bondage for about three months. So this had to have had a, a deep impact on them. Can we not relate to this in some way? Can we not relate to the struggle of whether it's we're leaving behind a life of sin or whether we're leaving behind a life that doesn't understand that Christ and God and the promises are better than anything the world can offer us? Can we not understand the struggle of going back to the former things for a sense of comfort and a sense of peace instead of clinging to the promises of God? I think we can relate to this. God further admonishes the children of Israel in this way in Joshua chapter 24 where he says, I have given you a land for which you did not labor and cities which you did not build and you dwell in them and you eat of the vineyards and the olive groves which you did not plant. Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. So 
from this point forward, I took the idea of nostalgia out of the whole thing, and it's not really about that anymore. It's about putting away. It's about putting away the former things. God commanded his people to put away the former things because there was something better. There was something better to be the object of their worship, the object of their praise, and the object of their comfort. It's about putting away and leaving behind things that are cheap substitutions for God. So the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 32, there are how to, or how not to, rather. So I wanted to find a how to example. What's the best way to deal with this whenever we come across anxieties, difficulties in life, whenever the reality of life hits us and we're tempted to go back to those things that we find comfort in that are not of God, that may be these innocent desires that could eventually become our idols, who's an example that we can look to in Scripture that did the right thing and that understood that there were far better things than what the world had to offer? I think Paul is a great example. You know, I've often thought about it. You can just throw a dart at the life of Paul and you can find an instance where you can find something to relate to. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, he begins there by saying, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. So to set the context of what's going on here, Paul is in prison. Now you and I have a perception of what prison is today. Three square meals, walls, a roof, maybe a bed, maybe not the most comfortable bed. But imagine a stone room with barely any light, a stone floor, maybe not even a bed to sit on, do some, or to sleep on. Do some research on some first century Roman churches. This is not a comfortable place for Paul to be at this time. So you would say that he is in a moment of distress and discomfort. He does not want to be here. Let's relate that to the children of Israel and what they had going on at the time in Exodus 32. But he's thanking God upon every remembrance of the people that he's writing to, so his mind is already in a better place. Always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as, it is right, just as it is right for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart. I forgot to highlight that, but that's another important point. They are in his heart. He's thinking about his brethren. Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense of the confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of me with grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in all knowledge and discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Such a profound statement. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. I was reading this chapter uh, when me and Evan were doing a reading plan, and I turned over to her while I was sitting on the couch and said, I, I can't believe that Paul had this in his mind when he's in prison. He's thinking about the needs of the brethren. He's thinking about the promises of God. His mind is in a much better place as far as seeking comfort goes. He's seeking comfort in a firm foundation rather than what the children of Israel did in Exodus 32 when they sought the comfort of an idol, of a cheap substitution for God in that moment. And I love the contrast between the two. 
I'm going to try not to butcher this, so I'm just going to read it. I love the contrast between the two because one leaves the imprisonment and oppression of Egypt behind and refuses to let go of what they've learned while they were in that imprisonment, while the other, that's Paul, leaves behind the prison and oppression of sin to find himself in prison for the cause of Christ and is comforted by the things that prison could never take away. This is the proper response to the uncertainties of life. This is the proper response to the stresses and anxieties that we encounter on a daily basis. It's not to seek affirmation in our flesh, to numb our senses with substances, to retreat into old comforts, to make those things our gods or our idols, but it's to be filled with the Spirit and to be mindful of the blessings of God. Now listen, I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea that I'm up here just condemning all creature comforts, that I'm condemning all comforts that you could ever have that are not reading your Bible and not singing songs of praise to God. That's not what I'm saying. You, you walk into my house, you hang, a, you hang a right through the front door, and you're going to see in my office the comforts that I have, the comforts that I indulge in, the things that I enjoy. You're going to see nice books on a shelf, and you're going to see a big TV. I like those things. They're fun. In and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with them. But when those things become our idol and our source of comfort, that's not putting away like what God called us to do. Because when we seek comfort in those things and when those things become our God, we might as well be looking at those things and saying, this is your God, O Israel, that led you out of the land of Egypt. We might as well look at that thing and say that it's our God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of of all comfort. Either God is the God of all comfort or our comforts become our gods. And we have to be careful of that. So how does Paul get to this point? Let's read on further in Philippians chapter 3. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I love the way that the ESV puts this. The surpassing worth of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. He paints a picture that it's, it's worth so much more in comparison to these other things. And we're going to talk later on about how these other things that Paul might have had, they were certainly valuable things. They were certainly things that you could look at and say, there's a measure of value in these things. But he looked at Christ and the knowledge of him and said that this is far better. So when we're talking about these substitute satisfactions and how we avoid making them our idols, we're really talking about two things. We're talking about counting the former things as dung, if you're reading out of the King James, counting them as loss, counting them as rubbish, as totally worthless. And we're talking about recognizing the surpassing worth of the knowledge of Christ. That's really what it comes down to. Before we begin to consider these two things, I'd like to make a point. <clears throat> and that's that we need to remember that man is a product of his surroundings. Man is a product of the things that he puts into his mind, of the things that they think about from day to day. There, there have been authors, there have been really smart people that want to write books about whether or not man is inherently evil, whether man is inherently good. At the end of the day, it is the nature of mankind to conform to that which we put around us, for that which we put into our minds and that which we take in. So on counting the former things as worthless, or counting them as dung or as rubbish, 
Let's read on further in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4. Paul says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I am more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. If anyone could have had a past full of things to cling to, I would imagine the Apostle Paul probably could have. Now, some of these things are sinful, obviously, persecuting the church. But there are things on this list that are good. There are things on this list that you might consider even neutral. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews. These are things that, in and of themselves, they might not be sinful, but compared to Christ, if, if they don't advance the kingdom, if they don't advance the word of God, if they're not working in the gospel, then Paul counted those things as done. He counted those things as worthless. So do we recognize that those things that either come before our conversion or those things that we might cling to that are outside of Christ, do we understand that those are just substitute satisfactions? Do we see them for what they truly are? I'd like to consider Samuel's farewell address to the children of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 21. He says, And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. You think Samuel understood what was going on in Exodus 32 or what was said in Joshua 24? When we turn aside to go after empty things that can't profit or deliver, you might call it dung, we end up filling ourselves with the substitute pleasures of the world that can never truly comfort us. You know, we were designed to seek after a certain kind of fulfillment. We were designed by God to seek him for fulfillment. But in effect, what happens when we don't seek after him, you might think of a child that seeks after candy, I guess. And they fill up their body and they fill up their stomachs and they fill it up with sweets and they fill it up with garbage and they get to the point where they don't hunger anything anymore. And they think that because they're no longer hungry that they might have received some nourishment. You know, it makes me think of this phrase that I've heard before, uh, don't confuse peace for quiet. You know, the idea behind that sentiment is just because things are quiet doesn't necessarily mean that things are peaceful. You know, I've, I've had some of the loudest arguments at the lowest decibels whenever, you know, everything's quiet, nobody's saying anything, but maybe there's some pent-up feelings of, of anger or whatever. By that same sentiment, we might confuse a lack of hunger for nourishment. And I think that's what that child does, and that's what we do when we fill ourselves up with the comforts of the world, we may not be hungry anymore, but we haven't received any actual nourishment. Something we need to do when it comes to the pleasures of the world and considering them in contrast to Christ when we're trying to count these things as dung and as worthless, we need to remember what their intentions are for us. 1 Corinthians 15:33 says do not be conceived evil com- or do not be deceived evil company corrupts good habits. So consider the intentions of these things for you. Consider the intentions that these worldly pleasures have for you when we indulge in these things whether it be sinful or whether it be neutral but it eventually becomes an idol. I'd like for us to consider the intentions that those things have for us. Now that might be a strange thing to think about because if you're the one watching television, if you're the one playing games, if you're the one uh, indulging in some particular thing, whether it be a hobby, you think you're the one in control. You're holding the remote, you're holding the controller, whatever it is. 
But at the end of the day, that thing has a particular intention for you. And I was reading in Proverbs chapter 7, and I noticed that there's a neat little principle that's illustrated here about the intentions that sin has for us. Now, I'm not saying that the sin of sexual immorality or fornication or adultery or whatever you want to glean from the passage is the same as innocent pleasures in the world. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is we're, we're really relating this to idolatry, and we're trying to talk about the intentions that that has for us. So in Proverbs chapter 7, this is Solomon talking to his son, and he's trying to impart to him wisdom. And he wants him to use this wisdom to help protect him from something, from the immoral woman, is what they describe it there in Proverbs 7. Picking up in verse 5, he says that they may keep you from the immoral woman. He's talking about the words of wisdom here. From the seductress who flatters with her words, and from the, wind, or from the seductress who flatters with her words. Skipping down uh, to verse 6, it says, For at the window of my house I looked through my lattice and saw among the simple, uh, perceived among the youths, a young man devoid of understanding. And then skipping down, it says, So she caught him and kissed him. This is speaking of the, of the harlot. With an impudent face she did say to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I have paid my vows, so I came out to meet you, diligently to seek your face, and I have found you. Skipping down to verse 18, she says, Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey and has taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the appointed day. And all the way at the end, it says, Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. So, looked at this story, and I got to thinking about the way that these worldly pleasures might entice me to seek them as my idol, to seek them as my comfort, and I got to seeing that the way that this immoral woman seeks this young man is in somewhat similar contrast or somewhat similar to compare to the way that she seeks after him to bring him in. She begins by flattering him in verse 5. She says, I have come and I have sought you. She seeks out the one that's void of understanding, kind of like a lion that stalks the weakest member of the herd. She actively seeks him out and grabs him and pulls him in. There's more flattery in verse 15. And she makes a great effort to keep him from thinking about the consequences of their actions. My husband is far off. He's gone into a far country. He'll come home at the appointed day. And then finally, death. When I think about this in, in comparison to these, these comforts that we might seek in the world, for these things that we might seek after for a sense of fulfillment and comfort, I try to think about how often they present themselves to me in this way. When you're presented with anything that's not God as an option for comfort, I would implore you to step back and think about these things. Is it flattering you? Is it treating you as if you deserve this, that you shouldn't be deprived of this? Does it seek you as somebody who's void of understanding? Does it appeal to your baser instincts that are not governed by logic and reason? Does it try to keep you from thinking about potential consequences of these actions? You know, I think about alcohol commercials and how they always portray people having a good time, and it doesn't necessarily portray the potential downfalls of that. Next, I'd like for us to consider the long-lasting impact that this kind of stuff has on our souls. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10 says, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This is also vanity. Have you ever thought about what this does to someone? 
to seek after something again and again and again, never to be truly fulfilled? I mean, is that not the definition of insanity? To keep going back to the same thing over and over again, to think that it's going to fulfill me more the next time, but then to be left with the same hole that can never be filled? Ultimately, to count it as rubbish, we have to compare it to that which is of exceeding value. In order to count the former things as done, we have to have something of exceeding value to compare it to. So we have to understand the exceeding value of Jesus and the knowledge of him. The contents of your life dictate your character and what you go to when life gets difficult. I'd like to read in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, it says, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. We need to be filled with these things. I think very often I look at the blessings of God and I think to myself, fill me up to just about right here and I'll take care of the rest. And what ends up happening is I'm filled up to about right here and I end up filling the rest up with garbage. And I come to find out that what I fill up the most in my cup tends to dictate how I, how I live my life. If my cup is mostly full of things of the world, then that's going to be the thing that I go to comfort when things get difficult. But if I'm filled with the fruits of righteousness, if I'm filled with Christ and I'm filled with the knowledge of him, then I'm going to go f- to him for comfort. In contrast, look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 through 19. Paul says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. If I set my mind on earthly things, if I set my mind to be comforted by things that are outside of Christ, that are outside of God, then I might as well say that my belly is my God, that my appetite is my God, because my focus isn't on the right thing. If you've been here for the Saturday sessions with Ian and our teacher training, you're going to recognize some of the things that we're going to talk about. But I want to talk about a few things that will help us see the surpassing worth of Jesus as opposed to these other things. To count the other things as dung and to move on to the surpassing value of Christ. The first thing that we need to do is we need to meditate and study the word. I can't emphasize this enough. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 15, Paul's talking to the young evangelist Timothy where he says, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. That word meditate means to take care of or to revolve. In West Texan, we might say, I'm going to stew on it for a little bit. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to put it in my mind and I'm going to let it circulate and I'm going to let it stay there and it's going to become a part of my thought process. In the world today, they don't want you to meditate. The world does not want you to think about stuff for too long. You know, I did, I did a little bit of research on this, and I found out that in 2022, 80% of the watched content on YouTube was what we call short-form content. If you don't know what that is, that's just those 60-second or 30-second videos that pop up on various social media platforms. 
They don't really want us to think about stuff for too long. They don't want you thinking about things for longer than 30 to 60 seconds. The world really isn't geared towards giving us an opportunity to meditate because we constantly get information thrown at us over and over again. So if this was important for the young evangelist to to have, if this was an important tool in his belt of meditation as he was going out to preach the gospel to the world, we need to consider it as well. Let's consider Psalms chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law does he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. This describes the blessed man as somebody who meditates on the word of God. When I think about meditation, I think about putting something in your mind for an extended period of time, stewing on it, and eventually you've thought about it so much that it becomes a part of a routine when you encounter things in life that you start to think about that. It becomes a part of your thought process. So whether Moses is up on the mountain or whether Paul's in prison or whether we're experiencing something difficult in life, that becomes a part of our thought process. We take the principles of God and that becomes a part of our thought process when difficult things come into our life. And instead of retreating into creature comforts or worldly comforts, we retreat into the word of God. Next thing I'd like for us to consider when it comes to seeing the surpassing value of Christ, is we need to spend time in fellowship. We need to spend time with one another. There's a movement in the world today that's against the idea of what they would call organized religion. They think that it's a fruitless endeavor, that it doesn't mean anything to be a part of an organization of people that proclaim God. When the truth is that Christ came, died for our sins, rose again the third day to establish the church, and he organized us into the body of Christ. So to be together with one another is something that God considers important, no matter what the world may say. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up to love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This doesn't just apply to the formal assemblies of the church, but any time that we can come together. We need to consider one another to stir up to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Engaging in something over time, for an extended period of time, you're eventually going to find out how valuable it is compared to other things. And I want to illustrate this by something that I, I did in December. So I, I did something that's called a, a dopamine fast. And for those of you who don't know, dopamine is just this chemical in your brain that regulates the feelings of pleasure. And the idea is that in the world today, we're so oversaturated by media, by, by television, and by all these different things that keep us in a constant state of receiving some sense of stimulation that we need to cut all that out for a little bit to try and reset our, our minds. And so what I did is I decided to cut out movies, TV, games, all those things, and to try and reset those things. And then I come to find out, well, I've got to replace that with something else. So I decided to start reading more. I decided to start reading uh, my Bible more. I started reading uh, novels, history books, those kinds of things. I tried to engage my mind for at least a month and get away from all that other stuff. And you know what I found out come January 1st? I found out that my desire for the mindless entertainment that I used to indulge in dropped off considerably. 
It's because I spent time in something else long enough that I started to see the value of it more so than something else. Now, I'm not saying that we need to take our sinful desires and get rid of them and then replace them with something neutral because then we'll just create another idol in our life. What I'm trying to say is that when you replace those things with something else that is valuable and you spend time in it, you will begin to see the value of that over time. And that applies with the Word of God and that applies with being together with one another. You'll begin to see its value. We were never designed to receive substitute satisfaction to fulfill God-given desires. That's why Paul gives this admonition, or this uh, commendation, rather, to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. He says to them, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is what it's all about. It's about turning from idols to serve God, not from turning from God to serve idols. But the devil has always been trying to deceive us by suggesting that our greater needs could be fulfilled by lesser satisfactions. If we aren't nourished by words of life and the knowledge of Christ, we'll be driven to fill our needs in the emptiness and depravity of the world. And just as that child who spoils their appetite for real nourishment with candy or with some other substance we're going to be fooled into thinking that we're somehow fulfilled when we're not really nourished. You have an opportunity today to turn from idols to serve God. You have an opportunity today to leave those things behind and to dedicate your life to something that's of exceeding value. If you're here today and you haven't made that decision to be baptized with Christ and to become a member of his kingdom, to be a part of the body of Christ, we implore you to make that decision today. If you're here today and you need the prayers of the church for any reason, if there's anything that we can help you with, we implore you to come and have a seat on the front pew while we stand and sing the song of invitation.